All right, hello everyone. If you haven't met me, my name is Tim, and it's my privilege to be speaking to you today from this wonderful part of God's Word in Titus. If you joined us yesterday, Titus, Simon, sorry, helped us see in chapter 1. Yeah, (laughs) chapter 1, that God has a trustworthy, life-giving message. It's all about eternal life, and it's entrusted to godly leaders. But today we're going to continue into chapter 2, and I hope we'll see that godliness is not something that's just expected of Christian leaders. As important as that is, we'll see that God requires all of us to be godly. But more than that, I think we'll see that at the heart of Christianity is a message of grace. So that's where we're headed in today's session. Let's begin. Now, I wonder what you think a Christian is, especially if you're not a Christian here today. What is your impression of Christianity? Is a Christian just someone who follows lots of rules from the Bible? This is certainly what many people at Deacon have thought when we've done surveys during our mission weeks in previous years. Jesus really just taught us about being a good person, right? In fact, that's what all religions are about. Whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, they all teach the same moral lessons, but not really much more than that. Have you ever heard someone say that kind of thing before? Well, I actually think that's a pretty ridiculous point of view to hold. All these religions are actually fundamentally different. But there is a small amount of truth in what they say, in the fact that Christians are called to devote themselves to good works. In fact, our passage actually begins with a big list of behaviors, a bunch of do's and don'ts. The elders in the church are not the only ones who devote themselves to godliness. The rest of us are not off the hook. Titus is told by Paul to teach these things to all the different groups of people he was leading in his church. The men, the women, the young, the old, even the slaves. If you're a Christian today, maybe you read a passage like Titus 2 and your first instinct is to feel discouraged. You read it and you're just reminded of your failures. You feel burdened as you read that young men are to be self-controlled. You read that older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. And you just think to yourself, I'll never live up to that. I just can't do it. Perhaps you feel that all your motivation to do what God asks of you is driven by guilt or the need to live up to the expectations of your your family, your church. You can often get into the mindset, can't we, of thinking that to be a good Christian, we've just got to try harder. We've just got to do more Christian things. We've just got to go to church more. Or even, you know, we've got to go to see you more, evangelize more, read more, read more Christian books. I just got to do more and then, only then will I really feel like God loves me. Sometimes our Christian life is marked by, by our guilt, this kind of sense of burden. Maybe you can relate. I hope we'll see today in our passage Paul's correction of this error. But before we get there, let's just spend a few minutes looking at the first 10 verses. What is God actually calling us to in this passage? So read with me from verse 1. Paul tells Titus, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. 
Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So here's our first point. The Christian life is the self-controlled life. You may have noticed how often the term self-control appears in these 10 verses. It's three times Paul uses that word. Older men are to be self-controlled. Older women are to say no to excessive drinking and are to teach the younger women to be self-controlled and pure. And what is the one instruction Titus gives to the younger men? They're to be self-controlled. And now, since this is the only instruction Titus is giving to the younger men, I want us to focus in on it today. And don't get me wrong, it's definitely important for us to know what he says to the women, to the older men, even to the slaves. But since we are today a group of young men here, I want us to feel the weight of how important this idea of self-control is. You see, we live in a culture that's not very big on self-denial. Perhaps pretty similar to the culture of Titus's day. To be actively self-controlled and to regularly say no to the desires of our hearts, it can be like swimming against the tide. Many of you will be able to identify straight away what I mean, particularly in our university context, right? There are obvious ones. We live in a place where drunkenness is pretty acceptable and sought after by many. If I want to have a fun night and enjoy myself, you know, alcohol is there. Why should I deny that? If I desire sex, many people might tell me just to go for it. What's stopping you? It's harmless. It's enjoyable. Everyone does it. In fact, some might even think it's pretty crazy if you tell them that you you plan to wait till marriage. You might get a pretty funny look. Or even just with our internet searches. It doesn't matter what we look up online, right? It's harmless. Some people might say that. But I think, actually, if this has ever mattered, it matters now. When all of our life has been mediated through a screen, we're especially at risk. Online sexual purity is an important and often very challenging part of pursuing a self-controlled life. And we could brainstorm others as well, I'm sure. How many of us could say that we're always self-controlled? with our use of YouTube or the TV shows we, we binge watch. I know, I, I can't say that. But I hope you can see now, even just with this one instruction, what a radically different life God is calling young men to. It can be really hard to be the one to say no to the things that others might say yes to. It can be costly. Many of you will have felt and experienced the cost of following Christ before. And I'm sure you will again. 
if you remember, we're like fish that are swimming upstream against the current, against the normal way of life that's all around us, and oftentimes against our own sinful desires. So this is what Titus is to teach the young men, and us, and everyone in fact, is to pursue a life marked by self-control. He says the older men are to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. These are some of the true signs of Christian maturity. Is this something you are pursuing? Have you given much thought to what your life will look like in 10 years? 20 years? Your Christian life, that is. What do you aspire to be like? I'll leave that with you. But what what motivation does Paul provide for us to live such a radical life of self-control and godliness as young men? Is it just as, as many people might think, following some outdated rules just for the sake of it? You know, it's all a bit arbitrary and restrictive. Everyone else gets to do what they want, but us Christians, well, we don't really have much fun. Or is it just another instruction there to make us feel guilty? I'm thankful Paul does give us two foundational reasons for pursuing this kind of obedient life in our passage. That's what we'll look at next. We'll call this point two. Motivations for a life of godliness. So what is our first motivation? Well, we pursue godliness in order to adorn the gospel. Adorn the gospel. Now, adorn is not a verb I use very often, but let me explain. You may have noticed in those first 10 verses the repeated effect that this kind of life has towards those outside the faith. Just look with me. Verse 5, the young women are pure and self-controlled. Why? So that the word of God will not be maligned by anyone. Some other translations use the word reviled. To malign or revile is to speak badly about or to hatefully criticize something. And again, look with me. Verse 8, Titus himself is told by Paul to set a good example, uh, to show it great integrity in his teaching, so that, what's the reason? So that no one who opposes the faith will have any grounds to say anything bad about us. Titus's conduct is what silences those who oppose us and oppose our God as well. In verse 10, Paul even tells the slaves, the Christian slaves in Crete, to do good so that the teaching about God, our Savior, would be attractive. This is what it means to adorn, to make something look attractive. Isn't that such an interesting effect of our actions? I don't often think about it this way. We are called to make the teaching of God, our Savior, attractive. People may not like the message of Christianity, They may not like our Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that he was crucified on a cross. Perhaps you once didn't think very highly of it either. They may reject the gospel itself. Sometimes that will happen. But in our behavior, we're not to give anyone any reason to reject our God or bring Jesus' name into dishonor. It's like a sweet fragrance. People can be drawn in. And the desire to know what's it it all about? Who is this God? What is Christianity? I don't know about you. I've heard many stories of people who, not Christians, but after going to to church for the first time, they're just so amazed at the welcome they received. 
the love and the hospitality that Christians show amongst themselves and to outsiders. And they want to, they want to stick around. They want to find out more. Do you remember in John's Gospel, Jesus said that all people will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. This is a tangible thing. It really does give great strength, I think, to our witness as the church and, and at Christian Union. And it, and it brings glory to God. So our first motivation, adorn the gospel. It's really all just about the glory and honor of God. We want his reputation to be great. We want to make the teachings of God, our Savior, attractive. So let that spur you on. But is there anything else that can help us and motivate us to live a life of self-control? Where else can we find sufficient zeal for the glory of God? Or are we just left to ourselves and the power we can produce to do it? Let's see, what's Paul's second and I think even more foundational motivation in our passage? So we pursue godliness ultimately because the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. Read with me verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now here I think we find one of the most beautiful passages in the whole of the Bible. But first, look at that little word for right at the start. Such an important word for our entire chapter. And this, this is the word that links Paul's instructions to the church in verses 1 to 10 with his ultimate reason why he gave those instructions. He has told each member of the church, regardless of their age or their status, to be godly. And us young men particularly, he's told us to pursue a life of self-control. But now here is the great because, it's the reason. For the grace of God has appeared. This is the most important thing I want you to go away with today. God's grace is the grounds for our obedience, not the other way around. Why should you be self-controlled? Because God's grace has appeared that brings us salvation. Not only that, God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to self-controlled. There's that word again, self-control. Say yes to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Let's consider first, what is grace? And how did it appear? What does that even mean? Well, grace is the undeserved love and favor of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere in another letter that God demonstrates his own love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners and enemies of God, he sent his own son. Jesus, to die for us. So straight after giving us this big, big list of instructions, Paul makes it clear to Titus, our performance of these things is absolutely not the reason that God loves us. God is a God of grace, and he loves sinful people. And there's never anything we can do in ourselves to be acceptable before him or to win his love. 
This is right at the heart of Christianity. This is at the heart of God's trustworthy message. But you might ask, how did this grace appear? What does that mean? Well, I've already hinted at it. God's grace appears to us in a person, in Jesus Christ, who came with the very purpose of saving sinners through his own death by crucifixion. If you want to know how God shows grace, look at the person of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Here we are told that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself the people that are his very own and are eager for good works. This is the essence of our new status as Christians. So what is a Christian? Well, firstly, we are redeemed. The word redeemed means here that Jesus paid a price for our ransom. He paid the price of his own blood to purchase us from our guilt, the punishment that we deserve, and our slavery to sin. He paid the price we deserve for our wickedness. Secondly, we are also purified. We're a cleansed people. Our sin had made us unclean, but Christ's blood makes us pure, holy. It washes us white as snow. This is who we are now if we've been purified by him. And thirdly, perhaps most amazingly of all, on top of our redemption and our purification, we are now treasured. We are Christ's very own people, and we belong personally to him. Do you see yourself that way? Jesus owns us. He bought us. We are his very own. I think it's beautiful. You might be asking, why did I use the word treasured? It's not in our passage. But I think this has a very clear link to what God said about his people in the Old Testament. Before Jesus came into the world, with the Israelites that he rescued out of slavery in Egypt. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. God says to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people his treasured possession. So I think the way in which God redeemed his people back then in the Old Testament, how he saved them out of slavery in Egypt to be his treasured possession, I think that is a picture for us of how Jesus, through his own death on the cross, how he redeems and purifies us and makes us his very own, his own treasured possession. To illustrate it, it's like a, it's like a man who finds a worthless rusty old trophy in the trash. He decides to pick it up, though it's, it's covered in dirt, it's really old, it's rusted, and he takes it home and he begins to restore it. He cleans it off and he shines it up, he removes the dirt and the rust, and he restores it to its former beauty. He then places it, amazingly, as his treasured possession in his living room, right in the center of his house, for everyone to see right on the mantelpiece. And he loves it. It's his very own. In a similar way, I, though the image isn't perfect, this is, this is how Jesus views us. If you're a Christian today, have you ever thought of yourself in these terms? It seems to me that when we rightly apprehend the richness and the depth of God's grace in Christ, this is 
how he teaches us to pursue the self-controlled life. Having been saved already, having been loved by God in this way, we will now want to love God. We will delight in his commands. We will want to please our Lord Jesus. It's the proper response to such love. The love of God that's produced in us when we rightly understand how gracious he is. I think it'll drive out and it'll replace our natural love for sin, for our former life. We will want to say no to ungodliness and yes to self-control. Not because we feel guilty, but because we love God. For those of you who are troubled in your conscience, and you're worried that you haven't done enough and your obedience has been inconsistent, well, first of all, you're not the only one. That's all of us. But this message, I think it should cause us all to leap for joy. To look at the love of Christ, uh, the love of God for us in Christ. That there's nothing we could do to deserve it, and there never will be. But it's also so important, too, that we understand what we've been saved for. Jesus gave himself so that you would devote yourself to good works. There was a purpose in mind when he came to the world to rescue you from your sin. Jesus died with the very intention of creating a people who devote themselves to good works. Paul says they're actually eager for good works. Now, if that is true, if that was the purpose, how can we not pursue the path of obedience? It doesn't make sense. But now, before we finish up, let's explore one one final point from this passage, an important point. Point three, godliness while we wait. Have a look with me in verse 13 again. God's grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul here lifts our eyes to the ultimate hope as Christians, what we truly look forward to. One day, Jesus, our great God and Savior, Yes, Jesus is our God. It's very clear. One day, he will appear again. And when he does, the goal of our faith will be complete. We'll be free from sin forever. The new heavens and the new earth that Jesus will create, well, it'll be a place where there's no more pain, no more crying, no more sickness. There'll be no more struggle against sin in our hearts. I can't wait to be free of it. And we'll be exploring more of this in our third seminar tomorrow. But I just want to remind us that we live in this present age between the two great appearances of Jesus. His first coming 2,000 years ago when he lived and died and rose again and his second coming when, when he will appear again in glory. Paul says it'll be a glorious day and everyone will see him. So we are called to deny ourselves in this life, to live a life that is marked by godliness and obedience to Jesus while we wait for that day to come. And as we said at the start, this will come at a cost. We're going to be different from those around us. We will have to experience the pain of saying no to ungodliness. Sometimes what we want to do, we'll have to say no. But we do this with the understanding that eternity is coming soon, and it is absolutely worth living for.
Have you ever thought about that day as your blessed hope, as Paul says? Living for Jesus now is the best thing we could ever do. So please count the cost. If any of you listening know you are not a Christian today, then I urge you, please consider your position, your standing before God. You really do need to be in Christ. It's not something you should ever put off. If you're not one of Christ's people, then that day when he appears again, it's not a blessed hope for you. But it's a day of judgment. You need to be cleansed. You need to be saved by him. So turn from your sin and come and have eternal life in Christ while God is offering it to you. But to finish, let's remember what we've covered. We've seen the all-important command of self-control for young, young men like us. Are we devoting ourselves to this aspect of Christian character? Then after we've remembered that, let us remember Paul's two motivations. We pursue this not because Christians are just supposed to be good religious people, but because we first want to adorn the gospel. And secondly, because of God's grace. God's grace is the grounds for our obedience. I want you to remember that. And God's wonderful grace is shown to us in the fact that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good.